everything took longer than expected. Everything was harder than expected. But I'm super stubborn. And I do, I do have a chip on my shoulder. I, I should actually analyze why that is. But no one can <laughs> not to do something. Yeah. Immediately, my back goes up and I say, well, you can't say that to me. This is Get Shit Done, a show about female entrepreneurs who are not willing to settle for 4% and the stories and steps they took to scale their companies to the top through traction by getting shit done and growing on their own terms. Welcome back to Get Shit Done, Queens. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, the founder and CEO of Get Shit Done. We are the originators of the Fuck 4% movement, where we no longer accept the fact that female-founded companies only generate 4% of total business revenues. But you know what, Queen? We're on a mission to change that. And we're going to do it together. If I had a dollar for every time I heard a founder say, this has never been done before, we are the first to do it. I would be sitting pretty by now in a penthouse in Brooklyn. And here's the thing. They're not completely wrong because oftentimes what entrepreneurs are doing is taking something that already exists, adding a couple tweaks to make it either easier or better for us. But when I think of companies that were truly the first, I think of companies that made us alter an entire behavior as consumers. So here's an example. Think about when you go to the grocery store. You're really just selecting between a ton of products that are all really similar, but there's just a couple of different things that are different about them, whether it's packaging or like ketchup. You're picking between Hunts or Heinz. You're you're picking between something that's a little sweeter and something that's a little more savory. And as the consumer, it's really not that tough of a choice because our behaviors have already been accustomed and optimized to select from those products. Then there are the true first, the true trailblazers that literally flipped industries on their heads because they had to adapt and change a consumer's entire behavior for them to even use the product or service. So I think of things like Pets.com and Airbnb and Uber and even Impossible Meats. Each of these companies was faced with the task of not only just building the product and service, but more importantly, having to convince consumers that it had value and shift their behavior to make them even try it. That's why I wanted to bring on my guest today. She is the first ever founding CEO, who happens to be a woman, of course, queen status, to build the first ever fully digital bank, which is a massive task when you're in a time where trust around cybersecurity and our personal data is at an all-time low. And now you're talking about putting all of my money digitally, honey? Like, mm mm-mm, friend, I don't know. But you know what? If there's anyone that I would trust to make this happen, to be the first and to get it done the right way, it's my guest today, Judith Irwin. She is the founding CEO of Grasshopper Bank, which is the first fully digital bank in the U.S. 
and we dive into what it takes to truly be the first, not even just the fact that she's the first woman to run a digital bank in the U.S., but the first founding CEO to do it in general in the U.S., Judith walks us through the process of not only getting started, but navigating things like regulations in an industry that is highly regulated to the process of shifting consumer behaviors and finding those first few that are willing to take a risk on you to developing the MLP, not your MVP, your MLP, which she calls the minimum lovable product with your consumers right next to you to what it looks like to have raised $130 million and it all almost collapsing just within a matter of hours because of one tiny regulation. Buckle up, queens, because you know it's about to get real, and she's coming in hot. Queen Judith Irwin. All right, Judith Irwin, welcome to Get Shit Done. Hello, Alex. <laughs> I love it. Look at that smile. Look at the glasses. The glasses are my favorite thing right now um, because we're on Zoom. Um, so like any of our episodes, I love to start with, like, let's take it back. So tell us first, where were you before you started Grasshopper? Well, I had just left uh, a successful exit. I was part of a, a bank, a Square One bank that was founded in 2005 we went public in 2014 and were sold a year later. So I was a newly liquid entrepreneur, which I love saying, and I can't say it enough times. You can be amazed how many sentences you can fit that into. But I thought actually I was done with banking. You know, I've been in banking for 30 plus years and I thought about teaching. I wanted to give back. And I was approached by an organizing group in Southern California with the concept of starting a venture bank based in New York because, you know, the big 800-pound gorilla is based in Silicon Valley. It's called Silicon Valley Bank. And on the East Coast, it's, you know, it really is a very different ecosystem in New York. Um, one of the reasons I moved from Silicon Valley to New York 11 years ago was because I just felt way more comfortable in this ecosystem. And um, I, thinking about it, thinking about the difference that we could make in terms of teaching other banks how to become competitive, how to use new technology, not be stuck in the old world, as well as um, having a diverse team. It was my chance really, truly to be thoughtful and um, very purposeful around the people we hired because diversity, not just gender or heritage, it's age, it's background, it's where you grew up. All those things bring healthy dialogue and competition um, or collaboration, I should say. So, and I got, was dismayed about other banks, specifically in New York. I'd gone and looked at what would be my potential competition. And what I saw in the other management teams were, you know, hand, a dozen identical people down to the tie. And you can infer what that looks like. But, um, and the board was a couple of generations older, so they had a little older ties but they all look the same. And I just really couldn't understand it. And frankly, I 
got a chip on my shoulder about it. And so, I mean, right today, I'm one of the 2% of bank CEOs who are women. Yesterday, for the first time, a woman was appointed CEO of one of the major banks, Citibank. Yeah, I saw that. And very exciting, um, but it's a very slow change, and I thought I could help change the perspective for that. And so, um, so I, you know, hitched up my britches and said I can do it one more time. And um, you know, started out late 2016 was when my non compete expired, and so I was working on December first, moving right? and grooving. You, the, the fascinating thing to me about your story, which I'm always looking at context because my background is sociology. So I'm always fascinated how people's environments really shape how they got to where they are. And I read something on you, and I think you told me this too, was that in your career, you had three bosses that were women. And you had been in banking, which I mean, finance like tech is very broy. So I would love to learn a little more also and we'll get to the grasshopper story which I think is fantastic. Um is were you did you start on the you know trading floor or at a at a bank at a desk and then how did those women shape really who you are today or what you saw yourself becoming? Sure. Well, I, you know, it's funny, as a teenager, I don't know why, I didn't know any bankers, but as a, like, 12-year-old, I said, I want to go into banking. What? I know. I know it was I'm crazy. sure your parents were like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a pretty unconventional upbringing. You know, I went to 12 schools, K through 12, moved every, you know, 6 to 18 months. And when I, um, I put myself through school and... The, when I graduated, it was a terrible time in banking. It was when Prime was 19%, and I couldn't get a job. So I took a job as a secretary in a branch for, at the time, Lloyd's Bank, California. That was a long time ago. And I just made my way up the ropes. You know, any time there was a new and interesting opportunity, I would raise my hand. That's a personal philosophy of mine. As soon as I take a job, I try and set it up so that I train my successor and become dispensable so that I can then have and go look for new opportunities. Who taught you to raise your hand? Because I feel like many women are not taught that. You know, I, I'm an odd duck. You know, I just... Odd ducks are the best. <laughs> I, I just grew up as someone with a lot of confidence. Um, you know, my parents were you know, lower middle income. It, it wasn't like we had money or anything. And I went to Air Force schools. I didn't really have a role model, um, but I have a pretty feisty mom. Yeah. You know, she got married at 17. She um, went and taught herself how to be a secretary to help me with college expenses and then became a really successful real estate broker. So I would probably oh. say that she was a, a, a mentor for me. But when I got into my first job, the first three bosses I had were women, and I did not know how unusual that was. Wow. And I had this false view that, okay, the, my career path is set. I see women in senior positions, so let's, let's get to work. Yep. And 
um, after my those three bosses, I never had another female boss again for 20 years. But um, I think what it did do is give me comp. I, I could picture success. Got it. I'm not afraid to take chances. I think it's naivete. <laughs> I just, I think that I um, jump into things looking for the best. My husband calls me a Pollyanna. Um, <laughs> so I, I tend to uh, look at what are the opportunities instead of what are the risks. Yep. I've been really very fortunate that I've landed on my feet yeah. because I could have, stepped on a banana peel, you know, and, yep. you know, um, but a big part of it is also working hard yeah. and but not being afraid. The, the fascinating thing, even just hearing about even going back to your upbringing is the fact that it sounds like you were military. Um, my dad was also military and there's this type of discipline that comes with that. You also have to be you moved around a lot. I was fortunate by the time I was born, my dad had retired. So I didn't live that life where you're moving around. But I did move around with my mom when she, you know, went to law school. And it taught me a lot about being okay with the unknown um, and having to start over, which is a lot about startups. Um, pivoting is basically what that is. But also the fact that you had strong female influence. So seeing your mom who was married at 17, who was like, I need to fund this. So I'm going to teach myself to be a secretary. And I think that leads us very well into this idea of being the first. So seeing, you know, your mom do that. And then also you go into environments where you've had women as your, your bosses and shaping that now we're at 2016, you are starting a bank. What, <laughs> What was that moment where you say, I'm going to start a bank? Obviously, it was a accumulation of experiences with, you know, going through the field, seeing that it's a lot of guys in suits and there's not a lot of representation and who you guys are serving. But what was that moment for you to say, we are going to start not just a bank, but the first digital bank? <laughs> well, um, it, so I did have a really strong partner in Carpenter and Company, our organizers. And my chair, John, John Fleming, um, was the person who approached me and ultimately offered the job. He's the one really who saw um, in me the potential to do this. The, the concept of a digital bank was really my conclusions after 30 some years in banking and knowing how difficult it is to scale mm -hmm. uh, that we had to do it in a, from a new technology perspective. Now, many of the things we did, as you indicated, we were the first, first time anyone had done it. Mm -hmm. And so you don't always do it right the first time and you don't always, um, you start out a particular way and you find you need to go another way. So, you know, it took us a little bit longer. We, it, we burned more cash than we would have liked, mm -hmm. but, um, and it took us 18 months to get approval um, from the, the regulators and we had anticipated six months. So um, uh, everything took longer than expected. Everything was harder than expected, but I'm super stubborn and I, 
I do. I do have a chip on my shoulder. I, I should actually analyze why that is. But no one can <laughs> not to do something. Yeah. Immediately, my back goes up and I say, well, you can't say that to me. I can do whatever I want. I can certainly do that. And so um, I, I also had the good fortune of starting with good team members. I was able to assemble a really good management team. My board is fantastic. And I took time selecting my board with diversity very much in mind. And so I actually had formed a really complete, almost independent board when I went to raise my money. Oh, okay. So I, I actually would love to, this process, because I think what you did, it's that the being the first in something, because there's, there's founders that come to me and they're just like, we, no one's ever done. And I'm like, mm, someone's done it. You're just doing it differently. And so the, the, the idea of a bank that's already been done, but you're like, we're just doing it differently, but there is fresh terrain. Like there's no, there's no footsteps that you can follow. So from the moment you say, okay, we're going to do this. Now, what did that look like to get started? Because that leads into these things that you're about to mention. So, you know, from selecting your team members, which I think you did fantastically and how you do it. Um, and then also from the moment you guys are going to get, you thought you wouldn't get your funding, but so you're at the stage of now we're going to get started. What did you do next? So I had the good fortune of spending 90 days before my non-compete expired. In uh, there were a number of things I did during that 90 days. I expanded my network significantly. So I went on LinkedIn and I asked my first connections for their connections. Yeah. And I went and I met, these were the days when you actually met people face to face. And um, we, I met a lot of people. I then asked them for their networks uh-huh. and I went, so three rings out. And I got to know a lot of people in a very short period of time. Uh-huh. And I tested this vision, this concept, this mar- is there a market need? Because there are, there are hundred, there's lots of banks in New York. And um, so I really wanted to understand the risk of having a new entrant. And I also was already looking, I I was told earlier in my career to always be recruiting. So in my networking process, I was constantly looking for the people who I would love to bring on. Later. Mm -hmm. So that um, I ended up being introduced to Minerva Tantoco, who was our co-founder, um, CTO. She was the first city, first CTO for the city of New York. So talk about a woman. So your first. CTO is also a woman. That's right. She was an all-star. Okay. Loving this. Started ways uh, a little while ago, but she was instrumental in the technology vision. The, she was in exactly the same place as me from a diversity perspective. And so, um, and we gradually hired our management team. My CFO is a woman of color. Um, and you, I, I just find this so fascinating because you are literally doing all the things that I'm like corporations need to be doing. So <laughs> you're saying I'm always recruiting. How did you decide? Walk us, walk us through that, that process of deciding who the key players would be initially and sure. then 
how you decided to include the diversity angle at such an early point because most companies are like, we just need to get the talent in whether it's subconsciously, unconsciously, they completely forget that side. It's more about, we just need to get up and running. And then later they see, wow, it looks very white or wow, it looks very this way. It's so tempting to call just the people you know and start it over again. Now, the one thing uh, I had moved while working at Square One from the Bay Area to New York, and our New York presence was very small. Um, the bank was based in North Carolina, and we had, I can't remember, 14, 16 offices uh, by the time I left. And so there wasn't really anyone in New York from square one who would have been, you know, could have been CFO, could have been chief operating officer, those sort of things. And so I had to look outside, but I also didn't rush it because there was a lot of prep work necessary. So we closed uh, our first $5 million in December when I joined. This was um, a lot of friends of Carpenter, friends of mine, um, and we got started and we we had to start the application process like right away because it's it, our i don't have it with me it's in my office our application was about 400 pages long and so start up as a bank start up as oh, a bank so much red tape of course There's regulations you have to a lot of things you have to prove and so in my networking it's a very specific kind of person who's going to be willing to do a de novo or a startup bank. Most bankers are conservative by nature. Oh, they yeah. have a very structured job, a very structured way about doing their job, very regulatory, um, a lot of restrictions. So to find a banker with entrepreneurial streak and the willingness to take risk that's not a very common person. And so, how so did you find them? A, a lot of looking, a lot of referrals, a lot. I, I, you know, I probably interview five people a week now. I'm not even really hiring for. And at that time I was talking to 20 to 30 people a week. So even now today, you're not even hiring, but you, Something you said earlier, which really stood out to me is that, because I find this with entrepreneurs, especially women, is that I can't do it until it looks this way. It's not, and then it's like, it keeps going up the benchmark. I do this to myself often, but you're saying, no, we weren't even necessarily quote unquote ready, but I was still recruiting these people. So you're saying today you're at five a week, even though you're not recruiting, like seriously filling positions, but then it was 30 and you were going outside of your network. You were getting referrals. And so you decided you needed what? A CFO, a COO? I, I, the management team from a, for a regulatory bank, the three, um, I can't remember what they call it. There's a particular name for it, but the three primary positions are CEO, CFO, and chief credit officer. Uh, I need to find my chief credit officer very early. His name is Al Sun. Um, and the, he had just, it was perfect timing. I was introduced to him by another woman who had worked with him. Um, he is an Asian American man and wicked smart. He came from the line side, so he also understands sales. I um, 
my CFO, Sangeeta, is a powerful woman, and she actually reached out to me, and we met, and we dated for a little while. That's what and it's about. My, I, I, I joke with people all the time. I'm like, my former co-founders in both my last companies, I'm like, that was, a, I think, a bigger marriage than actual our partners at the time. Like, one of my co-founders in my last company was married. And honestly, I feel like our trio was more married because we spent more time together. Much time together. And, and it doesn't, um, the, the time of day or day of the week has nothing to do with anything. No. So to be able to just get steps, get shit done to <laughs> it's okay um and so I, I was just really fortunate at some of my positions it took me a year to fill and wow. because i need i wanted the right person and i was going to wait for it and so that means some of us wear multiple hats yeah you know, so we find that right position and because i recruited such a diverse management team they recruited diverse people and you know it's um, it really has to start from the very beginning and it has to be in on your mind all the time we also hired people with no banking experience because we wanted you know the one of the problems with bringing a bunch of experienced bankers together is they know the way things have always been done yep so you're tempted to just come in and recreate it again yep. But we wanted to rewrite everything about banking, how every workflow, you know, something as simple as, um, well, opening account is not simple, so I won't use that. But um, returning a check, what are the steps, where's the client? So the user experience was something that we mapped from beginning to end for every work process. And we wanted people on the team who didn't have a lot of banking experience. So if we said, let's do it this way, and they would say, why are you doing it this way? And ask naive questions, which led us to realize, oh yeah, that's a great way to do it. And so one of, one of my other, I have a million personal philosophies, but there's <laughs> ways to do the same thing. Yep. And don't assume that just because you know a particular way that works really well for you. That's the way. The only way. That's so fascinating because it's the same reason like when we started the accelerator, I knew what accelerators were. I was like my last company was VC back. I had friends who'd gone through it. I personally had never gone through an accelerator, had never run one. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start an accelerator because it was really about how do we, I think that accelerators are such amazing engines, but I also saw the gaps was that they are so hyper-focused on a very small subset. And you and I have talked about this and have a lot of synergies between why we started our companies where I'm like, why don't we apply that to people who don't necessarily want to get a check because it can be very meaningful. So you got this team. It's very diverse. You get them on board. They're like, yes, we want to change the game. And now you're recruiting people in. So now, what what are some of these risks that you're up against? Because you're the first and you have all this red tape. You guys are moving and grooving. Now, walk us through, like, you got the team together. What's next? What were you really up against? 
So the, one of the first decisions we needed to make was what was our core processor going to be? Um, and, it, and I had very strong opinions about that. Um, there are three companies in the United States, I call them the oligarchy, um, who do, I don't know, 90% of the processing for banks in the United States, for 90% of the banks, which means all the banks look alike in how yep. they do these. There's innovation is very slow because it's the big, the, the big clients who push the agenda, not the little banks like me. And so we chose a non-traditional core. We were the first bank in the United States to use uh, Temenos software. They're based out of the um, UK, uh, excuse me, out of Europe. And we were the first bank to go live with their new core. And um, they, they gave us a, a fantastic deal and we partnered. So wow. they gave us a great deal because we were going to be the, you know, beta for a lot of what they were doing. Now other banks quickly followed. Um, Varo is on Timinos, a very large bank. Um, Commerce Bank is using them. But it was, it was the, the core of tomorrow. And so when you choose something that's untested, you know, things just take longer. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but, so that was a big decision and it was a big expenditure for us. And we had decided early on that two points of pain, we're a purely a business bank and we're purely a bank for the innovation ecosystem. You don't need to be venture backed. You can be bootstrapped, but you're in this, innovation ecosystem and um, we identify two points of pain one is opening an account a business account at a bank is a major pain in the neck um, it takes a long time you have to go into the branch they yep. want to do site visits think about a site visit if you're a virtual company how does that even work you know they're going to fly from city to city to meet each of the executive management. Um, the second thing was wire transfers. Um, wire transfers are also very painful to do. Banks charge $25 for a wire. You, my personal account, I have to go into the bank. Um, and then the third was um, capital efficiency and um, you know, being able for these young entrepreneurs, young companies to predict, be more predictive about their cash flow. So we built a prototype of how to open your account online. We had that built within six months of us starting up in December. We hired a prototype shop. We did user testing. Um, we uh, were all along the way meeting with regulators meeting with um, investors. We ended up raising a total of 15 million for our seed round. Um, and we ended up filing, and then we started building, you know, getting the core processor up and running. We had to, you know, add on other things, you know, remote deposit, check capture, you know, all the banking products needed to be either built or purchased and integrated. Uh, we applied for our charter on October, in October 2017, um, and we ultimately got approval April 30th, 
2019. So that took 18 months. We got preliminary approval from both the FDIC, which is the guarantor of deposits, and then the OCC is a national banking charter. Um, we got preliminary approval July 3rd of 2017. It just took a long time, oh, excuse me, 2018, and it took another almost year to get the final approval. Um, so while we're going through this regulatory process, we are building the bank and we're developing new technologies. We're spending time with potential clients. I start, we started our roadshow for um, our capital round also in April of 2018. And we closed our round April 2019. It took a year. We did um, end up raising 116 million for our capital round, so a total of 133. And this was at considered the what your is this still considered your seed or our ca our core capital? So this core is capital. what our is capitalized with, oh. so that we support deposits and loans. And so at the time, and I think still today, it was a record fundraise for a DeNovo Bank. Um, that was not easy uh, because, you know, on the road show, uh, there were three women and a man of color who were doing the, the pitches. And we yep. would walk into institutional investors who invest in banks. And I was told to my face, I've never seen a team like you. I like to play dumb and I would say, what do you mean? This is where the Pollyanna really pays off. I've done this before where I'm like, tell me more. That's right. Well, we had a really great investment banker helping us, KBW. Um, they were stalwart partners for us in this fundraise. And that's a really important part of, of what you do is you've got to pick good partners in fundraising. And you've got to do your homework on who you're fundraising for. So I'm going to take it just a sideways step. You know, I, a bank is a very special vehicle. But all technology companies, you have to do the same thing. You have to make very, you have to do your homework on what investors to pitch and what's going to be meaningful to them. But I ended up with 110 investors. Um, 133 million in total that are um, investors that invest in banks, so PE firms, family offices. Um, Hamilton Lane is an important investor in that mix. And um, Golden Seeds is a big investor. They had like 28 individual people invest in us at Golden Seeds. So, wow. And you have a pretty diverse. From what I was told, you have a pretty diverse cap table of people. Okay. So you, you've taken all of these steps. Like, it sounds like things are moving. It's not smooth sailing, but you guys are inching along. And now you have your team. You have the funding. But there's something you told me that could have collapsed it all. Like you guys did all this hard work and it was just in a matter of what, 15 minutes <laughs> that yeah. was a make or break. So what was that? So we had had to extend our fundraise um, a few times because the regulatory approval wasn't done. And um, 
we were coming up on April 30th, um, which was another expiration of our private placement, and we still didn't have approval. And we were, um, I checked in with my investors starting, you know, literally, so April 30th was Tuesday. Friday, we were, I was calling all of my investors to say, if this slips, will you extend again? And we, we got about 95 or 96% of our investors to agree. And, it, and it's an affirmative agreement. They had to sign something and get it to me in basically what was two business days. Right. And all of them? All of them. And wow. we couldn't get a hold of some. They were traveling. And so um, I, I let um, the OCC know they were really, you know, while we didn't have our um, approval, they still were fantastic partners. We were, we were a weird duck. We were a digital bank. We were a digital venture bank. And they had never approved a digital bank before. They had never approved a venture bank before. So I, I don't want to under, understate that we were a difficult bank to approve and they had to really do a lot of due diligence. And so um, I'm making a long story longer. It's five, it's four o'clock on Friday and I talked to the head of licensing a great gentleman and said, I, I can't get there. I'm at 96%. And he connected with the controller of the currency, Mr. Odding at the time, and they had gotten everything done. He just wanted to make sure all the agencies were good, FDIC and Fed. They all got together and we got our approval. We had asked our escrow agent to work until midnight. Mm. Because all right. we fired at midnight. And they got it done at 10 o'clock at night. Wow. Two hours of life left. And... Um, and out of that, what I learned was that in, you don't do anything alone. You know, no matter, I, that's why I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a unique person. I'm a, one of a kind in so many ways, Alex. But, uh, <laughs> but this was a huge team effort. The OCC, the Federal Reserve, the, the FDIC, mm -hmm. my KBW, Carpenter and Company, my board, my grasshoppers, um, you know, this was everyone pulling this giant, you know, barge upriver, and um, we made it, and we opened on May 13th. Um, we were in beta for a fair period of time because there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, one of the things you have to be really careful of as a small bank much less a digital bank, is your cybersecurity has to be rock solid. Mm -hmm. And so we, before we let our online presence out into the wild, we needed to do a series of testing, penetration testing, a lot of things, because safety and soundness is the most important thing a bank can do. So uh, what you guys do and why it's so fascinating, regardless of how much money, I mean, you've raised $133 million, regardless is that, you're still a startup. Like it's, 
you started this in 2016, got the funding in 28. I mean, you guys opened doors in 2018. 2019. 2019. Oh my God. It's been a year. Like that's crazy. And so what's fascinating to me is that like a lot of entrepreneurs say you're building the plane as it's flying. And so you, you get this team and you go to the funding and then you almost get everything like washed away just based <laughs> off of some red tape with banks. But at the same time, you're still focusing on building the plane and the, the most fundamental piece of that, the foundation are the customers. And that's something you had mentioned before. And when you're the first, you had already identified, we are going to focus on the ecosystem of startups, innovation, so on and so forth. Now, being the first and doing things so differently, even though it's a bank, it's digital, there's a lot of security concerns. What was that process like acquiring customers and having to educate them and get that buy-in? Because we are in an era where there is way more concern and just like just un, just a mistrust of yeah. of security and information and data with our personal data. So a bank online, what was that like acquiring customers? Well, you know, you hit it on the head. Trust is everything. And that's actually one of the reasons we're called Grasshopper is you know, banks have not done a good job of engendering trust in their clients. And I wanted to look and feel different from the beginning. And transparency is a huge part of who we are. So our clients know how we do business. They, uh, I actually try and connect with every client in some way shape or form, um, you have to tell the truth all the time. You have to um, prove it. And, um, you know, that's really what it is, is, and you have to prove it every day. The, and the people who joined us in the beginning, many of them were former clients of mine or other grasshoppers. They were, um, they could have been an investor in, in Grasshopper. You know, people really, um, and, they, and there were a number of people who our mission and values really resonated with. You know, far before Black Lives Matter, this was who we were. We are yeah. not lately to the desire to have an inclusive um, team and including our clients. So, uh, more than 50% of our clients are from under our underrepresented founders or investors. Wow. And, and that just proves to me that if you, if, if you look like your client, you will have much more of a chance of them trusting you. Yeah. Um, or yeah. if you talk like you kind of, you think like your client. So I'm an entrepreneur. Everyone at Grasshopper is an entrepreneur. So we deeply understand what it's like. And you guys created, which is so important because it's kind of like when we talk about investors invest in people, it's also people invest in people. As a startup founder, one of the, the biggest assets I tell founders is it's you. It's people are buying into your vision. They like you and you're bringing them along the ride. So you were able to get this buy-in from folks who had worked with you before, your teammates, 
Um, people who love the mission and the value that reminds me of Simon Sinek, Star with Why, I mention it all the time. Um, but also the other thing I love about your, your startup process and at such a high level you're doing it is that no matter how much money, you are still very much so lean and agile. Can you walk us through this minimal, minimal lovable product? Yes. I love this. When I read this, I was like, oh my God, love this woman. Tell me more. <laughs> well, and I'm going to attribute that to Minerva as well. I'm very careful about attribution. Thanks, so, Minerva. Um, <laughs> but um, the, we wanted to get into the market. We wanted to build this product with our clients. And so, you know, many banks still have the old school waterfall um, development where you go away and you work for two years on some new thing and you deliver it fully born to your clients and they may or may not like it. And so rather than do that, we put our, the meat and potatoes, basic stuff out and then we started iterating with our clients. And so we did several releases last year. We had a big release on December 31st that was largely driven by our clients. Um, we, we've had several. We have a big one coming up on the 24th, um, several coming up. But we go to our clients and we ask them, we just did this. Try it. What do you think? And we watch them do the keystrokes. We've, we've done this with videos and um, to see, you know, are, do they get a puzzled look on their face while they're doing it? Wow. You know, things that matter. And, and then we just take it back in to redo it, um, you know, in an agile methodology. And um, the, that means we'll be quick to market. We have, however, learned a lot. We are going to build less ourselves. We ended up building a lot ourselves because it wasn't available. Done that. Yeah. Oh, I did that. Oh God. And, but now <laughs> things are available. And so we're really focused on the ability to integrate and disintegrate new um, technologies on behalf oh. of us. So we believe in partnering with fintechs. They're not our enemy. Yep. They are what we're wanting to do. And that means that what we can focus on with where I think of us as a technology enabled bank, not as a technology company. Mm. We're still, but what we've done is use technology to make the human element more effective. So, my prior company, you know, account of if you're a banker, you have, you may have to spend two or three weeks getting all the paperwork from your clients mm. to set account any money laundering know your client it's got to go to some central office before it gets approved it has to look exactly like this and we we're doing that all online and quickly everything can be uploaded um, take a selfie with your driver's license you know everything but we have a human being they're ready to help you yeah all online but you, you can always reach a person and yes. everyone has my cell phone number. I love that because I think of customer service models where I don't like it when it's too far on either side. I don't like it when it's too tech where like you can't even get a customer service number. That is just unacceptable to me. Um, or if it's too heavy where I can't just 
do it myself and then reach out when I need, need support. So I love that you guys have gone through this process and been agile enough to really hunker in and build the product alongside of your customer to really see, oh, this is what they need instead of just developing what I see founders do all the time, bells and whistles, and they give themselves a pat on the back. And I'm like, but did anyone ask you for that? And a lot of times no one did. But I, I, what's very, what's also fascinating to me about being first in a space is that there is inherently more risk and you are going to make way more mistakes than anybody else. And it's going to be public. And that's what is, I think of, you guys are not going to be this because I believe you'll make it through. Um, like a pets.com, they were the first in the market. And then you have people that came in later that really reap the rewards off of them being the first. So what has been one of the biggest mistakes you've made up until this point that you feel has really informed the way you all operate today? Well, I will tell you that um, because we took longer to get to market and because we really were so very cautious about all of the functionality and the safety and security, we were behind on revenue goals. Um, and we started out this year as if it was really year one. So that doesn't feel very good. Um, you know, and I'm bound and determined to get to profitability by 2021. Yes, profitability. Oh, I love that word. And so me too. It's one of, <laughs> and so um, revenues, you can't save your way to profitability. So you have to be bringing in clients. And, and I have to say that our clients have been exceptional partners yes. because as we're building this plane, as we're flying, the user experience has been plenty of times or not worked as expected. And so in exchange, we are giving things back to our clients. We're doing free banking for life. You know, wow. if you're having hiccups because we're still testing this out, we're adding new things, then we're not going to charge you. We're not going to charge you $25 a wire. But then it doesn't cost me as much to do a wire. So I don't actually lose money like other banks do by saying we're doing free banking for life. So um, that's in recognition of the fact that we're not 100% yet. But yeah. so what happened out of that is I took too much responsibility on myself mm -hmm. and felt like I had to be the one to fix these things. And what that meant, I, I will just say, I, there was a point in time where I wasn't listening very well. Mm -hmm. I was so focused on, we got to get this right. We got to get it done by this time. And, you know, you miss a lot of really great advice. And I had a, I have a great board and a great, oh. but for me not to listen to them was foolishness. And the other thing that's really hard for, I think, women is asking for help. Yep. <laughs> this goes right back to that. You're taking on the world for yourself. Not to be a stubborn asshole, but because you feel such a sense of responsibility of nurturing. And I can, I've, I've done that where I, I'm like, it has to be this way. And I try to control it. I'm like, all these people are literally like, let me help you. They want you. They actually feel it. They feel good when they can help you because they probably admire you. Well, plus they will, they, they will feel like they're invested in my success and grasshopper's success. Yes. You just have to, you just have to be humble about 
what you can and can't do and readily admit to mistakes. Um, we, for a while there at Grasshopper in our all hands, we have an all hands meeting every Friday. We were doing mistake corner because we wanted a culture where people would raise their hand and say, that. and um, the funny thing is, is most of the time I was the one talking about mistakes. So. <laughs> but that's a good leader. That's a great leader. That is a great leader. I think that the one thing that I've been afraid of from the beginning is hubris, is thinking I'm right all the time and thinking I can't ask for help. And so I would say the biggest lesson I learned over 2019 is if you ask for help, people want to help and take it. Um, you're not going to be right. And it comes back to that hundred ways to do the same thing. Let other people do things their way. You know, you all come to agreement on where, what's the destination? What is this? What should this look like? But don't tell people how to do it. Let them get there in their way because they're going to do it the most efficiently they can. They're going to bring their best self and best skill sets to it. And then they're going to feel ownership for what they did and for the company. And so, um, so all those are lessons learned and, um, and I, but I learn something new every day. Yeah why I love this because I'm a very curious person and um, I, I do think now at my age, this point in my career, I think I know what I don't know, but I'm not hundred percent sure. <laughs> but, you're, but the thing is the fact that you're curious. It's so like listening to you. I'm just like, Oh, what a word for me. Cause that's something, the delegation piece, the let like, getting rid of the control, like trying to do everything myself. Like that was a big problem for me early on. So I would love to know as the first being the first in this space, you are the underdog and I love underdogs. Oh, it's my favorite. I always love a good underdog story. And I, I, I have full faith that you guys will win. Um, but what do you believe is going to help you defy the odds? You know, I think it's being true to our mission and our values, not getting distracted, not, and not trying to do too much, not get out of scope. And that's one of my, and one of my phrases right now is don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. And I have to say it all the time, uh, women, and, and I've been told people of color, underrepresented people feel like they have to work harder than everyone else to be successful. You take the world on yourself. And, that's the truth. And so, um, you know, that's, that's something that I really am trying to hold on to tight is be humble, listen. You know, with the Zoom calls, it's really helped me learn to listen better. Because what happens in Zoom calls is you've got, especially you have a bunch of people, you talk over each other and you stop listening. And so I actually am much quieter in meetings. And when there's silence, I actually let there be a couple of beats of silence before I say anything because people are uncomfortable with silence. Yeah. And they rush to fill it. And they may rush to fill it with something that's on their mind that they were reluctant to say. And it may be the most brilliant 
things said during the whole call. And so it really is asking open-ended questions of your team or your clients or whatever, and then being quiet. Yeah. I love that. I love that. For you, what is, if you could go back, there's any piece of advice that you wish you would have gotten that you would like to share with female founders today, what would that be? I, uh, people have heard me say this, it, you've got to love and respect yourself. It's, I think it's the most important thing. And I've lost track of that my fair share of times. Many, many During, during the PTSD that I experienced through the, the whole startup, I, I got terribly out of shape. I wasn't sleeping well bouts of depression or whatever. And um, I'm in a very different place now. I'm working, I work out every morning at an hour. I journal. I, um, I have regained my respect for myself with a heck of a lot of humility along with that because it's also important to know what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, I am the only person that's going to be with me my entire life. And I have to be able to count on myself because at the end of the day, no matter what, your parents are there for a while, your spouse there for a while or not, your kids are there for a while or not, friends come and go. You've got to look in the mirror and know who you are love who you are, accept your warts, um, and then stand proud, you know? That Um, is a word, Judith. I love that. So (laughs) tell us something we we love to do at Get You Done is um, is, is support. Like we, the, the tide rises together. So tell us what are you focused on and working on today and how can we support you? Well, we are very focused on supporting this ecosystem. And I think of this ecosystem from the solopreneur to, you know, the expansion or late stage or public company, the single GP, the emerging manager to the multi-billion dollar um, venture firm. Family offices and limited partners are a huge part of this ecosystem. They're bringing us the money that's funding our startups. And so what we're working on right now is building a suite of founder services that is outside of banking. So, you know, we help founders do pitches. We introduce them to investors. we We help them find customers. You know, all these things are outside of normal checking, savings, loans, deposits, credit cards. But um, we believe our responsibility is to help each and every one of our clients be successful with the tools we can bring. And so many of them are banking. You know, we want your checking account. It's actually the most important product I can give you because it's the thing that lasts. Yep. Um, But we want to help you. What We did PPP in the second round because we were mad that the small guys weren't getting the loans. And the smallest loan we did was $7,000. We did tiny loans. But what we learned in that process was entrepreneurs are often, um, they've got their 
subject matter expertise, but they're not financial experts, or they don't know how to set up a vendor management program. Who should I get my DNO insurance from? Help me find a good outsourced CFO. Those are all things we can help you with. And um, we can just listen to your, your issues in your company and share our thoughts on what we've seen from a best practice standpoint. So I would say how you can help us is letting people know that Grasshopper can be a resource and you don't actually even have to be a client for us to help you do things because yeah, wow. building community here. Um, you can help us by um, being successful at what you're doing because you're going to help create new companies that can be grasshopper clients or who can change the world. Because ultimately, that's the really cool thing about what we're doing. Yep. It, we want to change the world, most definitely. Um, but we're working with 130 investors and entrepreneurs today who are going to change the world. So what better thing could I have chosen to do as my last job? <laughs> I love it. Been, and so helping us think about ways to benefit this ecosystem. And then where can they, and where can they connect? So um, grasshopper.bank, www.grasshopper.bank. There's a link there to open an account, but our team page is on there and you can just reach out to us. I am Judith at grasshopper.bank. I love that. Uh, my cell phone is, I think, on the website. Um, you know, my favorite thing to do is to help. That's just, what else, what else could be better than to be in a position um, with the background, knowledge, the resources to help other people be successful? Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to help you grow your business on your own terms. If you want more support scaling your company and a chance to connect with a curated community of like-minded founders focused on slaying traction goals together, head to the link in our show notes to check out our accelerator and membership community. And if you enjoyed today's episode, show us some love by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. I also love hearing from you, friend. So tag me on the gram at Get Shit Done Queen and tell me what you learned or what you want to learn more about. Until next time, Queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.